Well, as excited as you may be, I'm at least that excited, maybe even more excited to be here. It was awesome to get into Sioux Falls last Sunday night and to jump into things this week in the office. I've had an opportunity to meet with each of the staff members, and we've got a phenomenal team here. I've had a budget meeting, which was just a blast and a half, but it was, it was great to see the, the diligence and the stewardship that, uh, that this congregation has had and to see uh, the generosity that has poured in from you, its, its, its members, over this uh, interim period and on into the future. So I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm glad that you came to church today. It would have been so awkward if, uh, if you weren't here. So I'm um, so glad that you're here. We're starting a new series. It's going to take us right into Easter. It's titled Journey to the cross. And uh, the, the language or the idea for the series comes from a little phrase in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. You don't need to go there necessarily. But we're told by Luke that at that point, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He, he set his face like a flint, is, is the way that it's translated in some um, versions, that, that he made a decision to move in that direction. And uh, if you've ever studied the Gospel of Luke, it's usually divided into five sections. The first couple of chapters is the historical narrative of Jesus' birth. Then there's John's ministry in chapter 3 and the first half of 4. Then from the second half of 4 through the end of chapter 9 is what's called the Galilean ministry. As Jesus announces that the kingdom is coming through him and he does ministry around the area of Galilee. And then at the end of chapter 9, we get this phrase that he resolutely set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And he knew what awaited him there. He knew that his journey to Jerusalem was a journey to the cross. And so as we join him along on this journey, we're going to look at a parable this morning. Then we'll look at several interactions that he had with individuals along the way to Jerusalem. So I would encourage you, if you're not already um, reading your Bibles, to start reading your Bibles every day. Begin in Luke chapter 1. Maybe you're already reading something. I've found that, that you can actually um, read several things in a morning. I like to read something from the Old Testament and something from the New Testament. And so whatever time of day that you like to set aside to connect with God and, and to connect to Him through His Word, I would encourage you to start maybe in Luke chapter 1. By the end of the week, you'll probably be getting close to Luke chapter 9. And as we move into this series, you can be moving moving through the Gospel of Luke, and God will start to connect dots in the, in the things that you read early in the Gospel of Luke with the things that we're studying together as we move on this journey to the cross. And so I think that the next six weeks have a real potential to be a turning point, not only in the life of Linwood Church, but a turning point in your own life, and that this Easter could be significant and special in a way that other Easter's um, maybe haven't, just different, not better, just So I encourage you to do that, and I encourage you to become a people of the word if you aren't already, because I have found that there is nothing more significant, nothing more catalytic in our lives than meditating on God's word, interacting with God's word on a regular basis, talking about God's word with other people, and really learning what God's word has to say to us. And so as we start this journey together with me as your pastor and you as our church, I'm really going to pound away at that, that we would become a people of the word. And so when I preach and when I teach, you'll often hear me say that as we encounter God's word, we should ask three questions. What does it say? What does it literally say? Back up, go through it a couple times as you're studying a passage. What does it say? What does that mean is the second question. What did it mean to the original audience and what does it mean to us today? And then finally, how does that apply? How does it apply to my life today? How am I going to be different because I spent God, time in God's word? So as we begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had your heart broken? I'll often ask questions to kind of set the 
the stage or, or get us thinking in the same direction. And I wonder, have you ever had your heart broken? If you're like me and you think about heartbreak, maybe your mind goes to middle school or high school and that first time that you had your heart broken. For me, I think it was uh, my junior year in high school and there was a little blonde girl that broke my heart. And wouldn't you know it, my senior year in high school, the same little blonde girl broke my heart, right? How many can resonate with that? And that's a different kind of heartbreak than we're going to be talking about today. But it's interesting because you've heard that phrase, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Right? That was, that was the case for me. And I, I came away the second time, there was not just the pain of having my heart broken, there was the embarrassment because people had warned me and said, you know, she, she did this before, she's going to do it again. And I didn't listen. But, but maybe step up a notch from, from young love and think about something maybe that breaks your heart. Maybe there is a relationship uh, that didn't go well and it broke your heart, literally broke your heart. Or maybe... Maybe there's a dream that you had that just suddenly or slowly died, and it broke your heart. Or maybe to digress back down into the, into the lower realm, maybe there's a sports team that broke your heart. Are we too close to the Vikings' loss to, to men's? There was some heartbreak, and I watched that, and I was thinking, God, I really think you're calling me to the Linwood Church and to these people, that, and I'm, my heart was breaking for you, you know? Um, it was hard. But I can, I can totally identify. I was born a Cubs fan. I was raised a Cubs fan. Uh, they used to say that the heart of a Cubs fan is 95% scar tissue. It's been broken so many times. But then on November 2nd, 2016, in the greatest baseball game that's ever been played, the Cubs finally won a World Series. I digress. I digress. But what is it that, that breaks your heart? What moves you beyond sadness? You're just not just sad, but... But you're, you're deeply saddened. There's a difference between being sad and being deeply saddened. And, and the things that really break our heart probably move us to action in some way. We can't just shrug them off. We can't just move past them. And, and maybe there's even an element of you that gets a little bit angry. A little bit angry when you see it happening. Maybe it's something that, that might fit the phrase, a holy discontent. Bill Hybels uses that phrase. Um, He's a pastor of a large church in Chicago, and he's written a book called Holy Discontent to sort of articulate this this thing that happens in us sometimes when we see something happening that's just not right. Maybe it's injustice. Maybe it's cruelty. Maybe it's extreme poverty. Maybe it's... uh, It's mediocrity, and it just drives you crazy when you see it happening, or it's the exploitation of the vulnerable. Whatever it is that breaks your heart, I want you to think about that for a minute, and I want you to to just let that settle on you for a minute, because we're going to look at a story about something that breaks God's heart today. And one of my favorite songs that we may even sing leading up to Easter has has a phrase in the chorus or in the bridge that says, break my heart for what breaks yours. That we want our hearts to be broken for the things that break God's heart. And so as we turn to Luke chapter 14 and we open up and begin studying the parable of the great banquet, you may have wondered why we had this banquet setting in here. And I want to I give a, a thanks to Janine Mills uh, for providing this and a thanks to Stephanie. I had this harebrained idea on Thursday afternoon and I got up and I said, hey, Stephanie, do you, do you think that there is any way we could get a banquet table set up? in the next 24 hours, on the stage, um, so that we would have that ready for Sunday. And she said, I bet Janine Mills would love to do that. And there are probably others who would have loved to do that as well, but she was our first call, and she was delighted. We were in here on Thursday morning setting this up, 
And uh, how many of you have ever been to a banquet like this, where, where everything was set beautifully? Or maybe you've seen a movie or, or seen pictures of a state dinner. Not a steak dinner. That's a different kind of dinner. I like those too. But a state dinner where all the heads of state come in from around the world, maybe to the White House or someplace like that, and everything is perfect. Well, today we're going to be looking at a story that this sets a little bit of the context for. And the message is titled, A Place... At the table. So if you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, we're going to be uh, looking at verses 15 through 24. I'll give you a little heads up. When we read a longer passage, I'm not going to put it on the screen. And that's intentional because I want you to have a Bible in your hands and I want you to read along. So if you have a Bible, bring it to church with you. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you and you can pick that up and we'll usually provide the page numbers unless Mark forgets, okay? So there'll be page numbers so you can get there quickly. Maybe you've got that on a digital device. I think that's wonderful. I read my Bible a lot on a digital device, so you can open that up and follow along with us. But I'll read the longer, par- the longer passage of this parable, and then when we dig into a specific verse, I will put that up there so that you can follow along. And I'll usually have the NIV, the 1984 version. Uh, there's nothing magical about that. It's just the version that I did a lot of my memory work in, so I have a lot of it memorized in there. And uh, it also just happens to be the Pew Bible that we have here. So I thought that might be a sign that, uh, that as, when I checked that out, I was like, ooh, they got the 84, because I think it went downhill a little bit in the 2010, personally, but only pastors talk about this stuff usually. So don't worry about that. But join me as we read this uh, together. Um, I'll read out loud. You just follow along in whatever version you have. Um, You don't need to change versions, okay, just because I like the 84. The the best version of the Bible is the one you read every day and apply to your life. So whether that's the New King James, the King James, the Message, whatever Bible you're reading and, and seeking God with and through, that's the Bible you should bring to church with you. So here's what uh, God's Word says. It says, when one of those at the table, now I've meant to set the context a little bit. Um, Luke 14 begins with Jesus at a Pharisee's house. And this is a, this is a banquet that has been, been set. And he starts out, he's teaching about banquets. And he's saying, you know, when somebody invites you to a banquet, don't sit in the nicest seat. And the, the most prominent seat, sit, you know, towards the back. So that they don't come to you and say, you need to move back. That would be embarrassing. Instead, he's saying, maybe they'll come to you and say, oh, you should move up. And, and you will be honored instead of being embarrassed. And then he turns the corner and he, he gets a little bit more convictional in what he's teaching about banquets. And he says, and when you throw a banquet, don't just invite your friends and the, the high society. Invite everybody. Invite those who are, are of a lower class. Invite those who, who wouldn't normally come. And you can tell it's convictional. You can tell that, that, that it gets awkward because somebody tries to change the subject at the end of this, uh, or at the beginning of the parable we're looking at. When one of those at the table with him heard Jesus say this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So he's trying to change the subject. But Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry. And he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. 
Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. All right, so I want to start by setting the table, so to speak. In verse 16, we're told that it's a great banquet. And that word that we translate as great into our English language from the original Greek language is the Greek word mega. How many of you have ever heard mega? Mega is a word that we translate right into English, and it means it means exceedingly great. It means the widest sense. So when we're talking about this banquet, we're talking about the widest, most exceedingly great banquet that you can imagine. And to uh, give you a little bit more context, if you go to Isaiah 25, Isaiah 25, verse 6, uh, you can read along if you want to. But in this little passage in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, uh, this is kind of in mind as the Jews would be, Jesus' Jewish audience would be hearing him talk about this. He says, On this mountain, Jerusalem, this, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So it's, the table has been set. There's a, a great banquet with the finest foods and the finest drinks. And on this mountain in Jerusalem, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all All nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the heavenly destination for all people. The the great banquet is a, a parallel or a symbol for the heavenly banquet. And so when Jesus starts talking about this great feast, his Jewish audience, a Pharisee in particular, would have that in mind, would understand what he was talking about, would have that context. And so we need to understand that context too. He's not just talking about a really nice meal. He's talking about something much larger, much grander. And then in verse 18, we get this strange report, right? Like if I invited you to the, the banquet that was just described in Isaiah 25, can you imagine not coming? But in verse 18, we're told, they all alike began to make excuses. There wasn't an outright rejection. They didn't say, no, I absolutely will not come. They just offered up these lame excuses. One, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a representative sample. These three are not the only three that, that gave this sort of casual indifference to the invitation that they had received. We're told that there were many seats that were available and that they go out and invite people to come in and even after they've done that, there are still many seats available. So this is way more than three people, but I find it interesting that two of the three have to do with possessions. And I think God might be speaking to us today in America that possessions and experiences often distract us from God's purposes, distract us from coming to church, distract us from doing the things that God has asked us as his people to do and to be about. So two have to do with possessions. One, you know, he got a new field. The other got a, a, a new set of oxen. He wanted to go try them out. But neither of those are very good reasons to, to miss out on the banquet that was just described in Isaiah 25, are they? And the third one is probably the most bogus of all. He says, another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Well, in culturally speaking, the wife would have been invited. You can fill in the blanks on what he might have had in mind, having just gotten married. But the reality is that this is a, this is a lame excuse. All three of them are not good reasons to miss out on this banquet. And I think this teaches us an important lesson that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. 
The opposite of love is not necessarily hate, it's indifference. And if you've ever read Revelation, you know in chapter 3 when he's talking to the church at Laodicea, he says, you know, you're lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold. And there's a lot that goes into that, that Laodicea was positioned right between Hierapolis and Colossae, and Hierapolis had hot springs, and Colossae had cold springs, and hot is good, and cold is good, but tepid is not, is it? And by the time they piped the water from either place, it arrived about the same temperature, just lukewarm, and it was disgusting. And so God was using language and, and, and something that they would understand to tell them, I, I, I can deal with you being on fire for me, I want that. But I can also deal with, with this resistance. What I, can, I can't really work with much is indifference when you're just dismissive and you just come up with excuses and you just relegate it to a lower priority. And so as they make excuses, as they desire to be excused from this feast and this party, I think we must learn that, that we, cannot, or we, should, we should not confuse what we cannot do with what we will not do. Because there's a difference right? There are some legitimate reasons that we can or cannot do something sometimes. But sometimes the reason is that we've chosen not to. We, we, it's not that we cannot do it. It's that we will not do it. Now, I want you to know that when you walk in through those doors and you come through that foyer and you walk into the sanctuary, this is a shame-free zone, okay? I have never seen shame accomplish anything positive for God's kingdom. And I have no intention of ever shaming any one of you. I don't think it has a place in God's church. However, I will from time to time seek to challenge you and seek to cast a vision for you. And I hope that you never hear shame because that would be the enemy's doing. That's not going to be my intent to shame anybody. But I can apply this a number of different ways. Having been a pastor for some time, I know that there are sometimes people say, well, I just can't do that, pastor. I just can't do that to a leader in the church. I can't serve there. I can't give. I can't come this weekend. I can't join a link group. I can't be in leadership. I can't live a life of integrity. And it's not because they can't. It's not something they cannot do. It's something they will not do. And so I want to encourage you that if the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder at some point and says, you know that thing you said you couldn't do, are you sure you couldn't do it? Because maybe you could. And maybe we could change the language from I can't because to I could if. I can't because changes to I could if. I can't tithe because I don't have enough money changes to I could if I cut the cable. That would free up enough resources to to grow in the grace of giving. I can't serve because kids are in sports. All four kids are in four sports. That's 16 sports. That's 16 sports a week. No wonder you can't serve. But I could if we limited them to one or two, made them pick. So I just, just every now and then I'll step on some toes, just a little bit. But it's never meant to shame. It's never meant to to be guilt oriented. It's always meant to challenge us to go farther and go deeper with God. And I want to celebrate. I don't need to be here a week to find out that that there is much to celebrate at Linwood. There are many people who are giving and serving. There's incredible hospitality here. Incredible hospitality that I've experienced and that I hear from people who are newer to this church. I ask them, how was your your reception? And they say, oh, this is a wonderful place. Warm, welcoming, 
wonderful hospitality. People are serving all week long. People are coming in and out, and, and they're serving in the children's ministry, or they're doing something in the youth area, or they're having a caring ministries meeting. Or, you know, Zach and Amanda went to Billings this weekend uh, with Pastor Keith and Sandra, and they, they went to the winter retreat for the district. And I walked through here at 625 on Wednesday night, and nothing was missing a beat. I met some wonderful volunteers, and, and there were people who were stepping in to lead while our, our children's director and our youth pastor were on their way uh, out to Billings. And the generosity, my goodness. Many of you may not know this yet, but last week we, we received an offering for Keith and Sandra to, to send them out with blessings as they go back to Nepal. And they were hoping to fund 100 audio Bibles, which would have been about $3,500. And it was so far exceeded that it was over $8,100 was given by you as a congregation to bless them and to say thank you to them and to send them out with our blessings so not only will they get the 100 audio Bibles, they'll have other projects funded. And uh, that is, I was so thrilled. I was so proud of you as, as the Church of Linwood, uh, sending them out that way and sending them with blessings. So thank you for that. I've, I've had uh, great conversations, interactions with the staff and the LBA. Uh, there's phenomenal leadership here at this church. And there's a very bright future at Linwood. So... Hear me celebrating and hear me affirming so many positive things, but also hear a challenge. If there's something, if there's an area where maybe you have said no to the invitation that was given to you, that you can lean in and respond. And in verse 21, we find out why this is so important, because in verse 21, we're told that the servant came back and he reported to his master, and then the master, the owner of the house, became angry. So when we talk about When we talked about the things that break our hearts, have you ever thrown a party and nobody showed up? Have you ever got everything, you know, cleaned the whole house? We got four kids, man. We clean the house. That's a big deal, all right? When we set the table like this, and if nobody showed up, in fact, this happened to me one time when I was uh, sort of as a missions pastor in a large church. We had missionaries that were coming in. They were going to speak in the weekend services, and then we were going to host a lunch for them afterwards so that people could hear more about their ministry. And they brought it, man. They came on Sunday morning, and he preached, and he gave an altar call, and people came down. People were saved. People laid chains and burdens at the altars. It was amazing. And we had such high hopes for this lunch that everything was going to dovetail right into that. We usually had about 40 or 50 people come to those lunches. We thought, well, surely this this couple, there's going to be 50 or 60. So we planned for extra. We brought in soup, salad, and breadsticks from Olive Garden and those little dolcini. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, those things are great. We had eight people show up for that missionary lunch. And I was embarrassed, and I was sad, and I was a little bit mad, if I'm honest. I ate the lion's share of those dolcinis, so that helped a little bit. (laughs) But you can imagine the preparation that went into that, and the honored guest that we had, and when nobody came. It was frustrating. And I think... One of the lessons that comes out of this passage, perhaps what I'll even call a bottom line, most weeks will have a bottom line. And the idea behind the bottom line is if you forget everything else that I said, don't forget the bottom line. And if somebody asks you at the coffee pot or the water cooler tomorrow at work, hey, what would you do this weekend? Oh, I went to church. And you're all excited and they say, what was the message about? I don't want there to be a blank look on your face, okay? I want there to be a bottom line from the message that you know. And you can say, the bottom line was that the empty seats in spirit-filled churches break God's heart. And they can say, well, Really? Tell me more about that. 
Because I think that's the bottom line here. And I think some of the parallels that we can mine from this text are that empty seats in spirit-filled churches break God's heart. Empty seats at the great banquet table are going to break God's heart. And there's some empty seats at Linwood, and we've got more chairs in the closet, and we'll get them out, and we'll add services, and we'll do whatever we have to do. So if it hasn't crossed your mind yet to be inviting people to Linwood Church, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you, let's, let's add a few people, a few families, a few dozen, every week leading up to Easter. Let's pack this place out on Easter Sunday, and let's just, let's just move right on into summer with, with that. Let's invite people to church, and let's fill this place by Easter, because... Because I think it breaks God's heart when your seat is empty. When, when something else takes you away. And I understand things take you away from church. I don't want there to be any guilt there. Okay, I know sometimes you've got to go see the grandkids. Or you've got to go here. Or you've got to go there. Or you're on a mission trip. Or, or whatever it is. But when you're just at home because it was cold and you didn't want to get out. I think it breaks God's heart a little bit. Because he had something for you. Right? And I think it breaks his heart when, when your neighbor's seat. Or your family member's seat. Or your coworker's seat is empty. In a spirit-filled church. And I believe that this is a spirit-filled church. And that God is going to do incredible things in us and through us. And he wants to bear incredible fruit in this community through Linwood Church. He has, he is, and he will. And it starts when we invite people to be a part of it. So raise your hand if you're here because somebody invited you to Linwood Church. Raise them high. Even the cool people. All right, so that's a handful. I want to ask that question in two months, and I want to see a lot more hands. You guys in for that? All right. See, if it's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That comes right out of the playbook for organizational leadership. If it's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. So let me break this down. It's your responsibility. The person in your seat needs to invite people to come to church because you are the conduit to the community for Linwood Wesleyan Church. We've got a great digital sign out there. We have a social media pages. We have a great website. We can advertise and we can do all those other things. And they're wonderful tools for you to leverage. But ultimately, you're the conduit into the community. You know people that I don't know. In fact, I bet almost everybody you know I don't know unless they already go here. So you need to be inviting them, and you need to be bringing them in, and you need to be using whatever means necessary to bring them in. And verse 23 of our passage really brings this home, because it says, The master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. So that my house will be full. And I love that language. He says, go and go with a sense of urgency and make them come in. One translation says, compel them to come in. So it's not just a half-hearted invitation. It's a, hey, I'm going to take you to lunch on Sunday. I'm going to pick you up at 10 so that we can go to church together. And then I'm going to take you out to lunch. Or I'm going to take you to breakfast and then we're going to go to church together. And you're gonna, I'm going to make you come with me because you're so confident that what they're going to receive when they get here is going to be worth it. And they're going to thank you for taking you to Linwood Church. So we're going to go, we're going to build relationships, we're going to invest, we're going to invite, we're going to invite again. We're going to go not only to the people that look like us and live around us and work with us, but we'll, we'll take opportunity with others. We'll take opportunity with people that don't look like us, that don't live where we live or go where we go. And I'll be honest with you, I chicken out sometimes too. All right, it happened to me this week. Almost every time I preach on something, I'll fail at it, 
that week. And it happened again this week. I failed at it. I had a golden opportunity to invite somebody to Linwood Church, and I dropped the ball. And I was with somebody, and I thought maybe they were going to, and so I don't want to be the pastor, and I made all these excuses and why I didn't invite them to church. And it really bothered me. And then I had a great opportunity on Friday and uh, invited a couple people to church and found out they, one of them uh, was already going to another church in town and the other one um, is going to one of the churches that Linwood helped plant in its history. And I was like, well, praise the Lord. That's awesome. Um, I'm glad you're there. And you know, the goal is not to pull people from other churches. If they're happy where they are, let them stay. But if they're disconnected, if they haven't been to that church in a long time and they're a little embarrassed to go back because they're not quite sure what that's going to be like, There's a place for them here. There's a place at the table for each and every person here at Linwood. And our bottom line, empty seats in spirit-filled churches break God's heart. We want them to break our hearts as well because it is an exceedingly great banquet. Thousands and millions and billions of seats at the table. There is a place for everyone to come. And there's still room. And we'll make more room. And we'll add services. And we'll plant churches. We'll do whatever we have to do to accommodate the people that God wants to send. But he's going to send them through you. So I hope you're hearing that today. And so as we shift into or transition into application, there's a number of different ways we can apply this passage. First and foremost, I would ask you to apply it individually and ask yourself the question, is there a place at the table with my name on it? Have I RSVP'd to the great banquet? Have I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I said, yes, I'll come. I'll accept the invitation. I want to be there. I want to be at that banquet for eternity. And if the answer to that is no, then today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you cross over that line of faith into the land. Or Sorry, over that line of fear into that land of of faith, where you can put your faith in Christ and you can receive him and receive his death on the cross that we sang about as the penalty for your sins. You see, there's two ways that you can atone for your sins. You can atone yourself, which means eternity separated from God, or you can allow Christ to atone for your sins. And trust me, that is a much better route to take. And when, as a pastor, I, I typically find that people fall into three categories if they haven't accepted that invitation. There's either the casual indifference, like, like the people in our story. I've got more time. I'm doing this thing over here, and that's pretty important to me. And so I'm not going to stop doing that to start going to church or start living a life that's, that's saturated with the presence of God. I'm just going to wait. Sometimes people tell me, oh, I've got to clean up my act a little bit first, and then I'll start coming to church. Is it really? That's kind of like signing up for the heart transplant after your heart improves. It doesn't work that way. Christianity is a heart transplant. It's, it's the heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh. It's, it's a transformational experience, and, and you can't do it on your own. That's the whole point. And so to say, I've got to clean up my act first, no, come to Jesus. Come, allow the Holy Spirit to move into your life and start to change things for you and with you and be transformed. And finally, I'll hear people say, well, I just want to know a little bit more. I want, to, I want to get some questions answered. And this is a great place to have your questions answered. This is a great place to, to explore and to be curious. But at some point, you're going to have to extend your faith beyond what you know, beyond what you have all wrapped up and understood perfectly. You're going to have to move beyond that 
And that's why it's called the faith. That's why it's a faith response to God's word. And if you're saved, if everybody in the room saved, I haven't been wasting my time because now you have three things that you can be thinking of as you invite people, as you ask people, as you share your story and share your faith. You can know that maybe they're going to fit into one of these responses and maybe now I can, can help them see why that might not be the best route to take. But maybe, maybe most of you already have a seat at the table. Maybe there's already a seat with your name on it. And if that's the case... I would encourage you to bring as many of your friends to the banquet as you possibly can. As many of your family members, as many of your co-workers as possible. This week, we lost, the earth lost, heaven gained, one of the greatest leaders in Christianity, one of the greatest leaders in our world today. As Billy Graham passed from this life to his eternal life, he left behind... A legacy of inviting people, inviting people to respond in faith to the good news that God's crazy about you, that he wants to spend eternity with you, that he has made excellent provision for you. And, and as he goes, he leaves behind a little bit of a vacuum that it's up to us to fill. It's up to you and I to fill, to be that invitational presence, to be that person who gets known by your friends and your family as an inviter. Because Billy Graham made that a good thing. And you could make it a good thing too. And sometimes I wonder, and I thought this thought again this week. I'd thought it before, but I remember, and I, I just reflected on it a little bit. I wonder who invited Billy Graham to church. Have you ever thought about that? Or maybe he was born into it. And, but somewhere up the line, an invitation was made. And somebody invited him or his parents or his grandparents. Can you imagine being the person that invited Billy Graham to church? What if the next person that you invite has that kind of influence. And you can play a part in that. You just never know. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage you this week to invite four people to church. And I know most of you won't do this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because I want you to be the one that does. And the reason I say four is because there's a lot of research that says one in four people that are invited to church in America will actually come. So I want you to invite four because one of them is going to actually come. And then next week, I want you to invite some people to church. And the week after that, and the week after that. And it just becomes this great habit to be in. And so that's our challenge today, and that's a lesson that we can learn. That empty seats and spirit-filled churches break God's heart. So let's fill them. Let's fill them. Let's be his servants that go out and invite people to come. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word, first and foremost. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us, for the way that you call us, to a deeper commitment, to a deeper faith in you, a deeper trust in you. And we pray, Lord, that, that as our faith grows, as it grows deeper, as our reach broadens, as more people are impacted by each of us as individuals and by Linwood Church, God, that it would be done in your power and it would be for your glory and yours alone, that lives would be transformed, that hearts would be set free, that pasts would be redeemed and futures would be bright. We thank you, Lord, for the invitation that you've made to each and every one of us. And we thank you and praise you for those who have accepted that invitation, for those who have come into the kingdom of God and are living in the kingdom of God, led by your spirit. I pray for the one that's maybe on the fence today. And they feel a strange feeling that's drawing them to you. 
pray that they'll lean into that and that they'll step forward into a bright future with you. And for each of us, Lord, may we go from this place as your ambassadors, compelling people to come into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And we have an opportunity to respond now. There'll be some music. You're invited to respond however you see fit. You can come down and you can kneel along the front here, and that can be a a symbolic gesture of your responding to the invitation of God. You can make an altar where you're seated and commit whatever you feel God urging you to commit to Him. You can stand and sing however you choose to respond. My only desire is that you would respond in faith to God's Word as you have understood it today. May God bless you.